Hi guys, it's Zoe, the founder of the OK Not To Be OK project, and welcome to the OK Not To Be OK podcast. Hi everybody, um, I am here with Sophie. You want to introduce yourself, give the little spiel? Yes, I'd love to. Um, hi to everybody who's listening. My name is Sophie Shev. Um, I'm currently a senior in high school at BHHS, so Beverly Hills High School in LA. And yeah, I'd be just like happy to tell you guys anything that you want to know about me, like mental health stuff, Latinx stuff, advocacy, really anything. You, you want to talk a little bit about like um, kind of what you explained to me, like a bit of a spark notes version, explain your life in one minute, kind of spark notes. <laughs> All right. <laughs> I like a challenge. Uh, <laughs> challenge. So- Pretty much. I'm 18 now. Um, And, you know, I grew up in the same like small Los Angeles Jewish community, but also being Latina from Argentina. Um, So it's like kind of like this dual like bicultural essence in a way. So that was like how I grew up. You know, I went to Sinai Kiva Academy, which is a really small Jewish day school here in L.A. Um, It was a great community. And, you know, the default for that is to go to Milton, which is another small Jewish high school here in L.A. Um, so that's what I did for ninth grade and half of 10th grade, but, um, in the middle of 10th grade, I became really sick with an eating disorder and ended up leaving school and just going full time to the hospital to treatment (laughs) one times. Uh, yeah, I was in a lot of different treatment centers. Like I've seen the entire world of eating disorder treatment, residentials, partial hospitalization, intensive outpatient, medical hospitalization, like the whole cup of tea. (laughs) Um, but after that, you know, it was kind of like, uh, okay, how do I transition back to regular life? So I ended up at the school that Zoe's at called Fusion Academy. Represent. Um, yeah, it's just like a one-on-one schooling, kind of like alternative school, I'd say. Um, lots of kids have similar struggles with mental health. Lots of them are professionals. It's, it's, yeah, it's an interesting scene, but, um, I feel like, you know, after that, like we kind of realized you know, we wanted like a public school and I wanted to get more into like my advocacy stuff. And I started kind of advocating for better eating disorder treatment, especially for people that don't have the stereotypical quote, anorexic thin body. Um, Because unfortunately, today's health system is still based on the BMI, which is not accurate at all. It was actually created using a group of white women and that's it. So it does not take into account ethnicity, like structure. I can go on forever about the science of this, but I won't. <laughs> and BMI is like, what is BMI like in a nutshell for people like who don't Okay, know. so it's the body max in- mass index and it just like measures, you know, your weight to height ratio. And doctors use this to determine if you're underweight, healthy, overweight, or obese. And like, no, it's completely incorrect. There are so many studies that show like, this is the most inaccurate, outdated thing on earth. And sadly, eating disorder treatment systems still use this. And the entire reason that people do develop eating disorders a lot of the time is due to these societal standards that are based on the BMI. Um, So when the medical standards match these societal standards, it's super invalidating to patients who don't fit that really tiny mold because there are people who are even more sick um, than people who present very thin 
that just don't fall into the BMI. Like, it's just horrible. So I started writing about that. I started writing poetry about my own experience in treatment and all that. And, you know, got published a few times and decided, like, I love this advocacy thing. A few times. (laughs) Just brush over. I got published a few times. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, nothing super major. Just, like, you know. (laughs) Very, very niche, like lit mags and stuff. But, you know, my poems did. And I was like, I want to write like full on articles. So I started doing that, switched to Beverly Hills High, which has like an independent learning center. And, you know, now I'm just taking like Beverly classes, bunch of APs, like fun. I like my school now. Um, but <laughs> honestly, plus, plus being published, plus I like. No, though, it's like. <sighs> honestly considering where I was a year ago like I feel like I'm just making up for lost time like I was doing absolutely no school (laughs) yeah (laughs) just I'm totally making up for lost time here (laughs) it's like all the things I didn't like I just have the most unconventional high school story and you know what guys that is okay like I did 11th grade over two years it's totally fine like I'm at a place now where I could say like I'm happy with the education I got it it's fine three different high schools but hey I got somewhere where I'm happy now so I feel like anyone who went through like as somebody who did go through the residential treatment type I know like not as many I went through one education I got in there was like an online online school and like I had to make up a lot for the education and I I was in high school thank god um, because like my credits would be so messed up, but apparently they messed up so many people's credits. Up oh, me. <laughs> like did they like they did they like make it like re- they made it like really hard for like, so many people. Yeah, yeah, I definitely experienced that. Um, the thing is, unconventional isn't always a bad thing, you know. Like I'm taking a gap year and then applying to college during that gap year next year, so. you know I've talked to lots of people about this like how worried I am that my transcript is so all over the place with three different schools plus like you know I have AP credits in the 10th grade then I did 11th grade over two years with like literally just basic basic schooling because I was low-key dying (laughs) Um, dying, like (laughs) low-key um but you know that is actually okay it just makes you stand out it makes you unique and it's part of your narrative and a bunch of numbers and letters on a piece of paper can never, ever, ever define you. So it's perfectly fine. Like you find your other kinds of educational joy. Like I think I learn a lot more from my advocacy organizations than I do from, you know, school, typical conventional school, which, you know, you learn different types of skills and this is more like real life applicable skills. So if you're one of these people who, you know, is having um, kind of a hard time with like regular school and typical conventional school, like, find other ways to learn like you will grow in other ways it's totally okay yeah for sure and like there's so many options out there for schools yes. these days like fusion um I know that's like helped me so much that's like the whole reason I started like getting into advocacy like more in depth because like in for my school for my class project you have to create some uh, community service like projects that you're passionate about and I'm like I'm gonna make a website and that's how this all happened I love that. You see, like things happen by the biggest like shot in the dark. Um, Yeah, exactly. Like I could totally relate to that. Like, you know, I just hosted the first Youth Latinx Leadership Conference um, a few days ago, Saturday. And that also started in the same exact way. I was talking with my friend. We're like, let's do a panel for maybe 20 people um, just talking about like how it's like to be Latinx in the U.S. in California. And then I ended up growing to like 
200 something people on like NBC4 and Spectrum One and all these places started covering it. I'm like, okay, cool. <laughs> how you replace your transcript? <laughs> I mean, low key, but <laughs> no, 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 no. You know, nice. Yeah. Yeah. Like education always mattered to me, but I think education goes beyond high school, college, et cetera. I think it goes into life experiences. So mm-hmm. I like that fusion does life skills. I think that's really, I like that more schools should do that. I, I kind of wish I took that now. <laughs> I know I've already kind of, I've read, I'm building my resume right now. Love that. Oh my um, gosh. I did it. So basically um, for like the first 15 minutes of class, I'm like really big on like how fonts look. I didn't like any of the Google Doc formats of the resume. So for the first 15 minutes of class, I spent redoing the format <laughs> of the resume. So now I have to create a whole resume, which I could have been finished in class. Oh my gosh. You know, it's really funny because I've been like doing resumes for so long. Like I, okay, I made my resume like about a year ago. It's been like growing and shifting. But then during the Youth Latinx Leadership Conference, we had a resume building workshop with Georgetown. So like I got to see people like build their resumes. And then literally today, my friend was like, can you help me build my resume? So mm-hmm. you're like the fourth person in like literally two days to talk to me about resumes. <laughs> I think it's just like a curve. I don't know. It's like spell or something. It's funny. But yeah, in terms of font, I'm like really weird. I always like like 12 point times new Roman because that's what they need from me when I submit things to like lit mags and everything. They're always like 12 point times new Roman. And I'm like, that's okay, now like Ariel is like not pretty. It's too loopy for me. Yeah. <laughs> Times New Roman is really nice. I'm watching a documentary right now about Helvecta. Oh my God. I wanted to watch that. It, I, I'll let you know how it is. Um, yeah. I'm watching it for my acting class. Apparently there's a lot of white European guys and that's the reason mm. he doesn't like it. I like British people. I mean, like, I just, I just like the accent. Like American English is such a stolen language and it's kind of sad because I have a lot of like international foreign friends, like my friends, you know, still live in Argentina. It's like, they're taught British English. Yeah. Nobody is taught American English outside of the U.S. And I'm like, yeah, exactly. It's like, it sounds kind of ugly, not going to (laughs) lie. When you compare it to British English, which sounds like so formal and like classy, like American English just sounds like, like just heavy. I don't know. <laughs> they like, I don't even know. It's just gross. And it's like such a hard language probably to learn. So was English your first language or was it? Um... It was actually Spanish. <laughs> I love Spanish. Um, like I consider myself like trilingual, you know, English, Spanish, Hebrew, even though my Hebrew is, you know, English and Spanish, I'm like a native speaker. And then Hebrew, I just say like, I'm proficient for a like school setting, so to speak. Yeah, it's interesting because I was born in the US, obviously, but my mom like had moved here like only a year before I was born. So she would only speak to me in Spanish. My dad's also from Argentina, so he'd only speak to me in Spanish. And I just didn't learn English until I started school. I started preschool not knowing English. I learned it like when you're little, your brain is a lot more malleable in terms of like learning language skills. So like my dad moved here at 10 and then moved back. Long story, but he doesn't have a Hispanic accent at all. Like his English sounds pretty much like mine. My mom moved here at like 22, like before, like a year before having me, her accent is like ridiculously thick. Like if you've ever heard, if you've seen Modern Family, she sounds a little bit like Gloria from Modern Family. Like it's like that. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I feel like, yeah, it just depends. Yeah, I I speak English and then I learned sign language, I'm learning a sign language of fusion. 
Ooh, ASL. That's amazing. You know, I know the alphabet and that's about it. Um, but I'd love to learn more. It's, it's a good language. I really like it. Um, okay. We could talk a little bit more about, uh, advocacy and stuff like that. Um, so I kind of like talk a lot about like the stigma around mental health and that kind of stuff. And I know you talk a lot about eating disorders and, um, as somebody who personally also struggled with an eating disorder, you know, those fun stuff. Um, how, first, what is it, how could you, how would you describe the stigma around A, mental health, B, eating disorders? And then okay. part two of the question, this is a two-parter, um, well, what could people do um, to help the stigma around mental health, eating disorders? Okay, I love this question. <laughs> <laughs> so part one, well, part one, A and B. So the stigma around mental health, I think it's very much, um, undervalued in today's society um, because a lot of people think that physical health is more important than mental health when in reality they're super duper intertwined um, in some there's some theories that say that they're one body like mental health leads to worsened phys- worsened mental health leads to worsened physical health and vice versa um, so definitely they're super intertwined and people don't value mental health as much as physical health. And I think this is due to like a lack of research and a lack of education and a lack of knowledge in general. Also, there's some cultural beliefs that um, mental health, um, that mental illness is equivalent to just weakness, which is absolutely ridiculous because you would never say that someone with cancer is just weak. But all the time people say, you know, people who struggle with anxiety disorders, oh, they're just weak. Like, no. it's horrible. And that those ideas kind of become very much perpetuated by just the lack of education that teaches us otherwise. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I think that's number one around eating disorders in particular, there's a lot of horrible stereotypes that eating disorders are only for like skinny white girls, yeah. um, who are already thin and who, um, are rich, et cetera, and just want to look like a model and a Barbie doll when that is very much untrue. Not all eating disorders stem from body image. Actually eating disorders are 80% genetic, 20% environmental. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that people need to have, um, certain neurochemical prerequisites in order to develop eating disorders. And as soon as they're placed in an environment that kind of sparks an energy imbalance, which is um, a lack of you're expanding more energy than you're intaking, that causes a switch to go off that leads the eating disorder to actually present itself. Um, Most people don't know this. I'd say like, I'm one of the few people who actually like has this spiel memorized (laughs) because I talk about it so much. I have, okay. So I had an eating disorder. Um, I had pretty bad. So you guys know how I like to keep it transparent. And that's why I wanted to tell you guys that there was a part here where I talked about a personal experience I had. But I want to take it out just to keep confidentiality of the people involved. And uh, yeah, just so you guys know, um, there was a part here where I talked about a personal experience with the eating disorder I had. But yeah, keep it during the interview. I didn't know the thing. I didn't know that. Like, that's really the thing. Yeah. You said about the, um, for like skinny white girls, like I'm don't have like the perfect body still. And even at the time, like I didn't, and every eating disorder for sure did not help. We have the perfect body. Um, and people are like, how can you have an eating, like people are like, you don't have an eating disorder. Like people didn't say yeah. that, but like my, like people, like people are like this, like I had people like mention it. Um, but like, you don't, how do you have an eating disorder? Like you're, you're not thin and like, People will be like that. It's like, you look, you, like you, you, look have healthy. you look healthy. 
Like, yeah, wow. those words are super those words are extremely triggering and people just don't know this. They don't know it's triggering and they think it's like a compliment, but it's actually indeed not. Um, you know, I've been on all sides of the spectrum. I've had, my body has changed a lot throughout this process. And thankfully I'm now at a very healthy place. I've more than doubled my weight, which I'm super happy about now, but it's like, you know, even saying like, oh, your eyes look brighter can trigger someone into like a full-blown relapse. Like, <laughs> yeah, it's like, I've seen it happen. Either way, whether it's someone's body changing down or up, saying that is not helpful ever. I just think, yeah. like, mm-hmm. in my opinion, we just need to stop commenting on people's bodies, period. Um, but that's, you know, we're a very, very long way from there. Yeah, for sure. And like, I feel like me and my friends, we, we like, um, we don't compliment as much as people's we comment on each other's bodies like if somebody if a girlfriend's feeling really down we're like yeah like you look like you look hot like that stuff yeah like, we mostly focus on each other's like actual like features like yeah more like that kind of stuff we comment on each other's personalities and I feel like that's something as a society you could do to part B of the question to bring, <laughs> I'm so good at this like to break stigma we're actually like, complimenting different features like our personalities or you're good at this like those are the actual important things to talk about of each other and notice things. Yeah, that's a super tangible and easy way to kind of help break the stigma is switch your compliments from what someone's body looks like to either what someone's body does. Like, oh my gosh, you're good at, you're a great hugger. Or you're like, like literally appreciating, even for yourself, appreciating what your body does rather than what your body looks like, number one. And also complimenting on things that are not body related. Like, you're a nice person like how easy is that to say or yeah. like yeah literally like you know the camper moth thing like what a beautiful neshama just replace body with neshama and it'll all be okay <laughs> <laughs> would you ever call someone's neshama fat like no you wouldn't so just <laughs> <laughs> that should be the title would you ever call somebody's neshama <laughs> Me too, okay. honestly. I don't really know that. Yeah, but you, you get what I'm saying. <laughs> but, but, yeah, like tangible things. Yeah. <laughs> I have a sticker on my water bottle because all of you guys are audio. It says nice Jewish girl. And it's a picture oh my of you. I'm dead. I love that. And I, I love that. Sticker, oh, yes. <laughs> yeah, for all you audio listeners, um, love you. It says nice Jewish girl as a girl. And then it's a picture of like grew from this book of me. <laughs> um, breaking stigma around mental health and eating disorders. Yes. So other ways, like I talked about why the stigma exists, you can literally reverse that by just educating yourself and educating others. It's pretty simple. Um, you know, like what I just said about actually eating disorders are quite a bit genetic. Like keeping that fact in mind that it's never anybody's fault. Um, when someone develops an eating disorder, it's not a choice, it's genetic and it's environmental. So educating yourself and what thing that I tried to do with my nonprofit, um, demystified it's called with like the ED capitals. So it's like demystify eating disorders. Anyways, that's <laughs> nice. That's um, thank you. Thank you. We're, we're still in the process of putting up the website. It should be up soon, but pretty much, um, part of what we're, what we're trying to do with that is implement curriculums into schools. Um, that teach about eating disorders. Cause like in health class, you'll often learn about, you know, sexual health and maybe a teeny bit about mental health, lots about physical health. Um, 
we need to learn more about mental health in health classes, but specifically about eating disorders and the warning signs. And if you see the warning signs in yourself or in someone else, how to react. Um, because kids are never taught this. And then they just have no clue what to do. Like I, you know, started to develop mine at a young age, like 11, I started struggling with disordered eating. Um, and, you know, thankfully my parents caught it. I ended up relapsing, whatever, but yeah, I just didn't know how to react. I didn't know how to help myself. And I had no idea that for me, gymnastics, I was a really competitive rhythmic gymnast. Like I didn't know that was associated with eating disorders. And that is like very much common knowledge for me now. So yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. And it's like, just education is the most important part of like anything from any type of angle and like mental health as well. I feel like that is very important. Again, sorry, my sister just came into the room. That's why I was like, waving up. <laughs> but um, no, I agree. And like, I know I never learned about, you know, as far as school. So like, I was like, oh, I learned about this like through, um, I did DB and or 12 even, but like I was in a group of like 17 year olds and 16 year olds, but like, I was like little and like in my, in my treatment center, there was like all older kids. So I was kind of like little, but like, it was like, I was learning about so much stuff like that I never knew about. So I was exposed to like everything like at such a young age. It's also where I, I, I don't smoke or like do anything like that. Cause like I would become my sleep um, literally, but no, I was peer pressured into doing it like at this DBT thing. Oh my god! Wait, so like you're at treatment for your own mental health, and then you're <laughs> well, it. Okay. Well, well, this wasn't a res- this wasn't a residential. This was kind of like you drop. It was you go for like an hour a week. Um, so here, I forgot why it's so choppy, but like there's a weird break here. I forgot why, but yeah. Uh, enjoy the story. I like feel like the developing the even we're at eleven, like because of uneducation, because like I feel yeah. that's around the age where I started it, because like. I was never like the perfect weight in my life. And like, that's like also genetic, like that kind of runs in my family and perfect eating is definitely not something that runs in my family. Very carb heavy, very like love that. And like, kind of like, it was just like an interesting time when it all started. Cause it was just like expected almost. And like, now it makes sense. Yeah. Like when it's the genetics are put in the right environment. So that like clicks exactly yeah it's a very like practical thought um you know it's I didn't know that it was genetic for me either but like fast forward to like when I was recovering I found out my grandma struggled from an eating disorder um and you know I struck I found out like you know it it's very common and there's a not such a fine line between disordered eating and eating disorders but nowadays society is full of disordered eating and sadly diet culture which is um needs to be yep burned but that's okay (laughs) burned in burned diet culture burned Uh, and stomped on for yeah yeah and fasting all that fun stuff disgusting and especially like you know growing up an athlete like yeah i I did, you know, my, my coaches would say horrible things about eating and about my weight and et cetera. And it's just, you, what did you do growing up? I was a gymnast. So oh, I, okay. Yeah. Yeah. It makes Wait, a lot of sense. You have a Russian coach by any chance. I did. Um, oh, Lord. Oh. So I did rhythmic gymnastics, which oh. not, yeah, even worse. Most people don't know what that is in the U S but it's like a very Soviet heavy sport. Like most people do it are in former Soviet countries, but it's basically you're doing this, the same amount of strength as an artistic gymnast, but you need to look like a ballerina. 
So it's literally like quite impossible. And I just don't, I just don't have the genetic, like I'm not, I don't have long legs and I'm super short. I actually stunted my growth thanks to that sport, but yeah, you're supposed to be tall and thin and like, I'm, I'm neither, (laughs) um, which was like, you know, great. And yeah, I tried to change my body for the sport and then it became, it totally went out of my control. Um, but I just remember like 11 years old, just looking at, you know, diet tips on Instagram. I got on Instagram at 10 years old, which is don't recommend ever. It was like 2000, this was 2000, like to 12 when Instagram, like was like a year old. And my, like people in my grade pressured me into getting it. I was like, yeah, sure. And you find all these diet accounts that are like, do this workout and you'll get abs in two minutes. And then when I didn't, I was like, oh my gosh, I must be like my body must be wrong. My body must be like cursed. And no, it's not your body that's cursed. It's not your body that's wrong. It's diet culture that's wrong. And it's diet culture that's cursed. And in order to like reverse that narrative, it took me so long. Like, you know, it took me, I was, I would say like, I became fully recovered like 16, 17. So it took me forever. Yeah. And like, you were talking about like rhythm, gymnastics and sports. I have friends who do those sports and I've heard the Russian coaches look (laughs) um they're bad my coach would I I went to two different gyms um the first gym my parents took me out because my coach would literally abuse me um like she would sit on me but the thing I would beg her to sit on me because it would be like if she sits on you that means that you're worthy of her attention and her help And like when she, there were multiple times that I got kicked out of class for not pointing my toe. Like all these things would happen all the time. You know, I'd always be crying. She'd call me stupid. The, my favorite thing that she did. um, My favorite thing. My favorite thing. She would literally imitate, imitate me in air quotes by like turning in her feet, like puffing out her stomach, making a double chin. And she would start mooing and be like, look, I'm Sophie. Um, Yeah. Bro, that's just fudge. Uh, yeah no kidding it was and I was like I loved it I was like no like this is my destiny like I'm gonna go to the Olympics like I meant to do this I'm gonna endure all this pain that's just gonna make me stronger like no pain no gain and that is a toxic mentality that sadly many girls are still in this is an all-women's sport um so this is a very toxic mentality that is still the mindset for a lot of people Mm -hmm. and it's not talked about ever because it's the best kept secret. And I'd say all of athletics. Um, and yeah, I've talked to multiple journalists about this and they're scared to expose it because there's some government involvement type shit. So it's, um, yeah, it's really, really, really bad. When I say it's bad, I mean, like, it's dangerous for me to talk about certain things. Oh, <laughs> Lord. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, I guess that's part of why I've gotten so into advocacy it's because this has never been like talked about. Yeah. It's just like, it's just something that people hold. Um, And it's brainwashing. Like I was, I consider myself to have been brainwashed um, into believing that this was good. Not only was it normal, but it was what I needed in order to be successful. And people die believing that they live their entire lives in that system. Low key, it's like a cult. (laughs) (laughs) I'm like, so I never like got into like I did gymnastics and like I did like Hollywood gym. I never did like the abusive coach type. Yeah. Like, easy shit. Like yeah, I've had like the coaches be like, oh yeah, 
like turn off, like, but like I never had the hardest stuff. Like the worst I've had was, um, at my old school, I was like on the dance team and like I got like all the praise from the teacher and I got like, made fun of by the other kids. And oh. I got, um, but like I've heard horrible shit from other people and like, yeah. I don't understand it. Why is it, why is this the same thing from every single person? Yeah, it's it's a pattern. And unfortunately, you know, I'm assuming you did artistic gymnastics and that's another evil because that's very US dominated. The thing is a lot of stuff in, you know, the past few years has come out about sexual abuse with young women and young men, um, which is very horrible. So I just think I think sports can be a beautiful thing, but as soon as they become corrupt, it needs reforming. And that reforming has sadly not happened for either artistic or nor rhythmic. Um, you know, artistic, it's now in the news, it's now people are speaking out about it, which gives me a lot of hope um, to see people like Sean Johnson, you know, like Simone Biles, like actually talking about their experiences. It's a hard thing to do. And I really commend these women um, for speaking out about something. But, you know, there's stories about how they were scared to while they were, um, you know, Simone Biles still competes. But like, for example, like Michaela Maroney, like Sean Johnson, they wouldn't have spoken out of this during while they were training because that would sacrifice their spot on like the Olympic team that they've been working for their entire life. Um, And sadly, you know, they couldn't speak out about the abuse they were enduring until after, because, you know, it's like either you throw away what you've been working for your whole life or you like speak out. It's like, you know, kind of a no brainer. Of course, you're going to keep working for what you've been working for. So it's really manipulative in that way. And it's horrible. And no wonder so many people develop mental health conditions and eating disorders yeah. who are in that situation. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just, I'm speed. It's just all sports, man. And all of them, all of them can become toxic easily. It's just a matter of like, which people you're surrounded with, what system you're in, like, and then even curdling can become toxic to a certain extent. Like, I'm you, toxic literally. <laughs> um, no, and then there's a problem with like, I'm going for outbound male mental health, but we don't know the men, the men's side. Yes, we do not know the men's side because there's a lot more silence. Um, you know, stats say that eating disorders are 70% women, 30% men, but I am a believer that it's 50-50 and just men aren't speaking out. And I don't think I uh, yeah, I feel like. I feel like like there should be like, and I don't know if there is, I feel like it's not like, I feel like it's more disordered eating, but like men try to like, it's so weird. Women try to get, I was talking about this with my guy friends. Um, Women try to get skinnier and men try to like gain more weight. Yeah, yeah. It's, you know, it's complicated. Yeah. Like a lot of sports that are viewed more male, like wrestling required to be in weight classes. And that's when men fall into eating disorder behaviors that are attributed to women. And because women are weak in a patriot, like, you know, this horrible patriarchy that we've been living in, um, they don't want to admit. Yeah, exactly. It's like, if they say, you know, trigger warning, like I did this behavior and people are like, oh, but girls do that. That means you must be a girl. That means you must be weak. Of course, they're not going to speak up about it, which that's another thing we have to destigmatize is the gender dichotomy and, you know, gender norms, like. Exactly. Yeah, like a hundred percent. I think it's all very intertwined. Like once we accept that, you know, gender is not binary and gender is not like there's not like, you know, girls do this, guys do this. Um, like it's where it's not two sides. Like if girls do it, then guys can't do it. Like, no. Once we accept that men can have the same behavior as women, women can have the same behaviors as men, 
then that's a step towards like normalizing and destigmatizing mental health and speaking, having more male people speak out about their own struggles with mental illness, especially eating disorders. I well, yeah, it's like very, yeah, about like male eating disorders. Cause I know a bunch of men are like, oh, I need to be, I need to be heavier. I need to do this. And I'm oh, like, yeah. like you don't. And yeah, yeah. It's like, they're way more open about where they, their weight. I learned that too. Yeah. Yeah. It's interesting. Um, you know, it's kind of, I feel like for women, numbers are a little bit more stigmatized. Yeah. Way. way more like, we're like, oh, you can't ask a woman your weight, but for a man, it's yeah. like, oh yeah, I weigh 195. Yeah. Or for whatever. Man, exactly. It's like, for a woman, if you weigh 195, you're like, oh, you can't be 195. And if for a man, you're 195, it's like, oh yes, you got, yeah, you're good. It's like, wait, why can't I? Yeah. I think it's a really, like, it's a weird stigma and it's like very much a double standard. And we're talking Um, like sexual, we're talking about like biologically female. We're not talking about like gender. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Biological. I mean like people who present. Yeah, exactly. People who present male, people who present female. But I mean, that's another thing. Um, Eating disorders and mental health in the LGBTQ plus community is like a very rampant epidemic due to the fact that, you know, with gender dysphoria comes body dysmorphia. And that gets really tricky. I've seen in treatment, like so many, you know, LGBTQ plus non-binary, like trans people. And a lot of the issues is that it intertwines, like the way that they perceive themselves is they're not happy with their body because it presents in a way that they don't feel on the inside. And when I would try to describe my eating disorder to people, that's how I would describe it. I'd be like, I feel like I'm skinny. Like I'm doing everything I can to be skinny and somehow I'm not. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, once I let go of that and said like, what the heck like screw that like (laughs) um I do not care what I look like you know like fat is not a negative thing that's just something that society decided because we're fat phobic sadly um but yeah I think that's a big issue um I'd say like majority of people I've met in treatment did identify as LGBTQ plus or were very closeted and that led them to cope with that through behaviors which can get very tough I feel like that was my experience treatment too. A lot of the people were, and a lot of people also, no matter what they were in the floor, also struggle with some sort of eating disorder, disordered eating. And it's like, if they're struggling with mental health, I go on a lot of tangents, if you can't tell. I'm like going off in five places, but like my brain just works like this. Um, But no, it's like all connects. Yeah, it absolutely does connect. And you know, like I'm, you know, I consider myself to identify with many minorities, like I'm demisexual. So I am part of like the plus. Um, And yeah, I'm also, you know, a woman and I'm Latina and I'm Jewish. It's like all these things that like combine. Um, (laughs) Exactly. Like, I guess like it it kind of like looks like, 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 I'm a Jewish woman, um, bisexual like it's everything like there's no mental health advocate I'm allowed like I exactly and you know like I never really like thought like I never go by my day thinking like oh I'm a minority like that makes me different like no but society sees me that way (laughs) so I guess it makes sense that I cope by like ignoring my entire identity and focusing my entire identity into one thing which was control what I'm eating um because that was a way for me to avoid it was a way for me to avoid confronting my different 
identities. It was a way for me to avoid what society stigmatized me to be and what society saw me as. And I was just like, I do not care. All that I care about is like what I'm eating in the next five minutes. You know, it was a very, yeah. Like eating sort of kind of became your identity in some way. Very much so. Very much so. And actually, interestingly, as soon as I decided my identity is no longer someone with an eating disorder, but my identity is someone who is in recovery from an eating disorder and then eventually recovered from an eating disorder and someone who advocates for better eating disorder treatment. That was really what I believe led me to recover. Like I always say that my identity saved my life because I was very much, you know, at points on the brink of death. Like this isn't something I always talk about, but like I wasn't very physically healthy either. Um, and I think what pulled me out of kind of I had this sick, twisted pride for that. I was like, look what I did. Like I can accomplish this tangible thing. Um, But once I realized like I can accomplish tangible things related to other identities, such as my identity as an advocate, as a leader, as a Latina, as a Jewish person, et cetera. Once I started like feeling rewards for those parts of my identity and um, becoming very involved in my community, I slowly let go of the identity that was tied with the eating disorder and eventually let go of the eating disorder altogether and you know here I am recovered and doing everything in my power to avoid (laughs) relapsing and um yeah I mean the thing with eating disorder recovery is you're always gonna have to be like wary um anything can trigger but I'm at a point where like I am very much healthy both physically and mentally and yeah it's just a matter of keeping awareness I let kind of my depression and my anxiety and the suicidal tendencies um, become my totally um, become my identity and kind of what pulled me out was um, leadership. Yes, absolutely. I can relate to that a lot, a lot. Yeah. It's like, yeah, like the way that I looked at it, it's like I went from being like, oh, the anorexic girl to being like the leader girl. And I was like, fine with that. (laughs) Having people rely on you. Exactly. I need. Yes. Yes. Absolutely. And you know, one thing with leadership is you cannot help others until you're at a stable place yourself and you're able to help yourself. So that was also a motivator, at least for me. Just like I have to get to a good place. Yeah. So I could help others get to a good place too. Yeah. Well, I want to say thank you so much. Where can everyone find you? What's all right. Yeah, you guys can find me. So my organization's Instagram is Latinx underscore leadership. Um, so you guys can find me there. That's like where all of like my advocacy stuff for like Latinx identity stuff. I post some mental health stuff, lots of stuff about my conference. So reach out to me and find me there. Um, yeah, I don't have a huge social media presence. Like I don't really have social media, period. But, you know, it's chill. Um <laughs> Yeah, like literally DM me on that Instagram and I will absolutely respond. <laughs> and everyone knows. And yeah, um, thank you so, so much, Sophie, for coming. Um, really got a good conversation and I learned a lot. Um, blown away by everything you do. Thank well, you thank, you. <laughs> thank you. Girl. Like this is an amazing, amazing project. I love it. Like you. all incredible. I can see you built a really great community. So I'm proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> I hope you guys enjoyed that as much as I enjoyed recording that. Um, it was also my first time editing a podcast, so I hope you guys like the editing. I'm sorry if it was a little choppy and on my little editor's note. Um, I'm going to go take my murder test. Um, but thank you so much to Sophie and thank you so much to all of you guys for listening. And always remember, it's okay not to be okay.